Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, and how all of those things intersect. Yeah. And it is 2021, y'all. We made it. Barely. We're here. Barely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, yeah. I don't like when people say like, oh, you know, that that one year, what a trash year, blah, 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 because, you know, it's it's all kind of made up. But I think we can really objectively say 2020 was a terrible year, and I'm very glad to not be in it anymore, if just so I can say that I'm in a new year. Um, so, yeah, that's really what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about what we want out of 2021 for ourselves, for Black people, for this country, and just sort of reflect on that. Yeah, so let's get started. All right, so first, real quick about 2020 and why 2020 sucked. Um, you know, there are a lot of cosmic things that I'm sure kind of contributed to 2020 being as terrible as it was, but, um, it's also important to recognize that a lot of what made 2020 so terrible, um, were decisions, were systems, um, were institutions that were in place long before, uh, 2020 happened and that continue to be in place today. And so, you know, 2020 was terrible. It did suck. Um, but I think, you know, it's just important to note, and we talked about this and you, you alluded to it in the intro, if we don't do things to change the systems, change the, um, institutions that really resulted in a terrible 2020, um, we're not going to have a better 2021, um, or really, uh, any year in us history following that. So like, (laughs) there are some systems, there are some systemic things that that need to be addressed in order for us to not continue to see a repeat um and they range from like the environment to the economy um to like police violence to all these different things but i see your point like something that i definitely want to leave in 2020 is this idea that you know we're better than this or this isn't us or anytime something terrible happen like anytime our politicians do something terrible anytime uh you know one of our fellow americans does something terrible like storm the capital for instance to say things like this isn't us and we're better than this has this never historically been the case um and so i think maybe shifting that a little bit to say we should be better than this this should not be us this is not who we want to be like thinking of things that way instead of trying to cast our minds back to some imaginary time when America was good and America was better than it is now. And America wasn't capable of all of the horrors that we've seen over the last, you know, 12 months or so. Um, I think that would be a helpful frame. Yeah. And yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And it actually makes me think, okay, I said, I wasn't going to talk about history, but like, it makes me think of a recent podcast um, through line. And they were talking about the end, the fall of the bronze age and, um, really the question was, y'all can't see at home, but Marion's laughing at me because I went all the way back to prehistory, but like, what you know, is the, the conf- bronze age, please, Brian, just right, give us so, a little bit of background. So the bronze age, uh, is kind of the same time period with like, um, you know, ancient Egyptian empire that we know about kind of ancient Crete, um, and, and all of these, is it Crete? ancient Crete and like a lot of these um, Mediterranean empires, um, a lot of Mesopotamian empires, Syrian empires, the, that that area marked by the invention of bronze, right? Um, and so it's seen as this period where like writing starts uh, being used really broadly. There's a ton of international trade. Um, there's a lot of wealth accumulation. Um, there's just a lot of like international diplomacy and it's also marked by like the really the end of that period as well. And and so a lot of scholars have kind of grappled with like, how did that happen? How did this seemingly like just like, you know, flourishing multimillennial age come to an end? And it's like, well, that happens when like we don't learn lessons. And so I think that like that is very much the case. Um, here, like with the idea of like we're better than this. Like by saying we're better than this, we are completely ignoring. Um, to your point, things like the Wilmington race riots, we're ignoring things like 
Tulsa, right? We're ignoring things like the compromise of 1877. We're ignoring like the, the fact that we are doing the same behaviors that we've done before in history. Do you want to explain what those three things that you just referenced are? Because I think that not all of them are kind of um, necessarily household historical events. So, yeah. So um, I guess I'll start with the Compromise of 1877. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was a following Reconstruction. It's noted as like the end of Reconstruction. Essentially, um, there was uh, the election, the presidential election was contested. And the compromise that was made um, was that um, in order to settle, you know, the dispute, they would withdraw federal troops from um, the South, from the Southern United States, which was every, you know, the troops were there in order to um, implement, to, to, uh, to implement the tenets of reconstruction to ensure that black people had the right to vote um, and all these other things. And so immediately after that, you see uh, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. You see just uh, a huge influx of um, white racial violence, um, white terrorism. Um, you see the end of um, black representation and government in a lot of places for uh, probably a century. Um, in a lot of states in the South, it's a it's a hundred years before they send black members to Congress again. Um, similarly, with local elections. Um, and so, you know, there are some serious parallels between what we've experienced in this past year um, and the Compromise of 1877. Um, similarly, the idea of white violence just as a thematic, you know, thematic uh, um, a marker throughout history. Um, you know, in Tulsa, there was a growing, um, they call it Black Wall Street, but essentially, um, you know, uh, uh, self-sufficient black, um, large black economy um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, it was completely decimated and, and torn down. Um, and, and so, and the, the other important part of that is that there was like no repercussion, right? Um, so this is 1921. This is kind of the height of segregation um, and black folk are kind of making a way out of no way. Um, and it's completely torn down. It's literally, you know, they take cannons and bomb um, um, parts of Tulsa, the Greenwood district. And, um, and, and then even uh, before that though, was uh, the Wilmington race riots. And so, it's uh, noted as the only successful um, political coup in U.S. history. It's 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, and a white um, mob, um, very similar to what we saw on January 6th, um, essentially uh, threw out um, the duly elected government and replaced it with, you know, a white supremacy government. Um, so, like, you know, these things have happened throughout history. Um, not just in the South, they've happened all over the place. In the United States, it is very character, white violence is very characteristic of our nation's history. And so to pretend like it wasn't on January 6th is a historical and it's dangerous. Yeah, thank you for that. And I do think, you know, we saw a lot of this is not us, this is not America, we're better than this. We saw a lot of that just over the course of Trump's presidency that people, and particularly liberal white people would try to act like Trump came out of nowhere, that he just sort of spontaneously generated, took everyone by surprise and was saying a lot of stuff that nobody had ever heard before. This wasn't true at all. Um, he is part of a really long history, like you pointed out, a really long history of white supremacy, of uh, toxic patriarchy. And he was just saying a lot of things that people have been saying for centuries, but he wasn't saying them in any sort of genteel way. He wasn't hiding them in any way. He was just being very explicitly racist, anti-Semitic, sexist, transphobic, like anything you could name. Um, and so similarly to how Trump really didn't come out of nowhere, January 6th and that attempted coup, that didn't come out of nowhere either. He has been stoking white violence and white rage for the last four years, and he has been stoking it as it's been sort of like quietly stoked for several um, decades, if not centuries. And so, yeah, January 6th, we just sort of saw the culmination of that very angry white lash. And it was very, 
yeah, it had a lot of historical antecedents. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was say, horrifying yeah. to watch. It was shocking to watch. And it was also part of, it just, it fits with who America has always been. I th- I think, you know, you're, I mean, I'm just agreeing with what you're saying. I think, you know, you don't even have to go back to 1898 or 1921, right? Like, there are direct, there are really direct connections between the rhetoric, the ideology that went into January 6th and like the anti-welfare queen campaigns from the the 70s and the 80s, right? Like there are, there's a direct relation between anti-Blackness, you know, uh, nationalism and and white supremacy um, that have shown up consistently. I mean, just about every episode of this podcast we've talked about has really, in one way or another, dealt with the effects of white nationalism, white supremacy. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just like it does us no service to pretend like this is an oddball event, um, like this is a surprise. I don't know a single black person. The, I don't know a single black person who was surprised that this type of anger and violence could happen. Um And to be honest, I don't think most white folk were surprised either. I think it was hard to digest, right? Like it was hard to have to face the reality of like, this is actually where we are. Um, But, you know, I find it hard to believe that anybody was truly, truly surprised. Except for maybe the Capitol Police. (laughs) They weren't And I don't think they They were were surprised. (laughs) No, they weren't surprised. They were very much read in on it. But that's for another conversation. (laughs) But yeah, we said that we weren't going to talk about the riots really at all. And yet here we are talking about the, (laughs) it's almost like it's an unavoidable thing that's hanging over all of our heads to this day. But anyway. So instead of talking about this anymore, um, why don't we do some visioning? It's the Mm -hmm. beginning of 2021. I bought a new planner. I'm excited to use it. It's February. I've been using it. Um, but why don't, why don't we take some time and do some visioning and maybe talking about what we want to see um, in 2021. So this marks season four of At The Intersection, which is pretty wild. And we have a lot of big ideas on how we want to grow the podcast. One essential part of that is growing our team. Thanks to those who have already given, we've been able to cover costs like audio equipment, website maintenance, technology, and software. Yeah, but we would like to hire an editor, bring on someone to help us out with our marketing, and purchase better equipment so we can have quality sound and visuals to go along with this high-quality content. So if you want to join some truly awesome people and give us monthly support, you can go to www.at-the-intersection.com and click on How to Support Us. And if you want to give in other ways, please email us at at the intersection of at gmail.com. Yeah, I think I really like that. I um, what I want to see most of all is real, genuine political courage. I want to see people who are in power. I want to see leadership actually say, okay, we have the power to enact really progressive policies. We have the power to actually center people who have been historically harmed, marginalized, um, pushed aside, stolen from, plundered. Like we have the power to actually center them and create policies that can uplift them because that will be the way that we can actually make this country an equitable democracy as opposed to what it has been, which is just a shamble of a republic. that's really what I want to see. I want to see a willingness to actually take, if they're not willing to do it, to actually step aside and let the people who are willing to do it do that, to actually center the people who have the most need and who probably have the best ideas on how to solve this country's problems. So that's sort of my number one thing that I want. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. Um, I want to see us recognize how bad the problem is or how bad Mm -hmm. our problems are. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, for a lot of, a lot of different reasons, a lot of rhetoric from leaders, from political leaders, um, you know, sector leaders is really couched around like things aren't that bad guys. We only have to do these, you know, X, Y, Z and fix it. It's like, no, things are bad, right? Like people are hungry. 
Um, you know, people are being evicted from their homes in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, more than 400,000 people have died from COVID. Um, we have cut unemployment benefits at a certain, you know, like things are not good. And I, I don't think downplaying the height, you know, the, how bad the issue is does us any service. And so one thing I want to see is a recognition of just how bad things are. And then I want to see a response that is equal to how bad of a situation that we're in. Um, like right now, there's so many unsolicited op-eds about why a $2 trillion you know, stimulus budget, stimulus plan is too much. And, um, and I, I, I can't believe that we're having, like, I can't believe after the year that we just experienced, like we're having a conversation about austerity and about like, we don't want to hurt the deficit. And it's like, we may not make it to next year. Like Pete, not, let me back up. Cause I, I actually don't want to like, I don't, I don't want to use that rhetoric of like, we may not No, people actually did not make it right in this past year and other people will not make it to next year if we don't actually recognize how big the problem is. Um, and it's, you know, people say life and death, like, you know, they, they use it all the time, but it, in, in so many people and, and families, like it is literally at that point um, because we're refusing to recognize how big the problem is because it's really politically um, inefficient to do so. And um, Amanda Fisher, who um, is president at, um, at Equitable Growth, the Center on Equitable Growth, um, the other day said the costs of doing too little are greater than the cost of doing too much. And that's so simple, but like we have, you know, we have never, we have never done too much. Right. <laughs> and like all the arguments against like, you know, against monthly stimulus checks against, um, you know, eviction, like long-term eviction freezes against student debt relief against, um, you know, a living wage, all these things are, are, are just not even situated in the right, uh, we're not even having the right arguments, um, mm -hmm. or we're not arguing about the right things. And so, yeah, I just want to see that entire narrative shift, um, for 2021. I agree with you. Cause I think it's very comforting to think, oh, we just need to do a couple of tweaks. We see that in our work all the time. Like that a lot of the organizations we work with are hoping that we just come in and say, you all are already doing a great job. You just need to change you know, one or two things. Or it's like when you watch um, any of those uh, like bar rescue or uh, like, is it Hell's Kitchen that Gordon Ramsay does or Kitchen Nightmares, mm -hmm. Kitchen Nightmares, where what they want is for this guy to come in and say, oh, your food is amazing. All you need to do is change the font on your menu. You need to change your marketing a little bit, but everything that you're doing otherwise is phenomenal. And they're always surprised when this man comes in and says, first of all, you need a gut renovation. Like there's <laughs> there's actual just rats in the kitchen. Like we need to change that. The food you're cooking is trash. Like people don't like to hear that, but that's really the truth. Like we're not in a situation where we can just change a couple of policies and, you know, refurbish a few things and then America's doing fine. Like you said, I mean, all of the tweets that we saw from so many people saying like, oh, it's so great to not have to care about politics anymore. Oh, it's so great mm. to, you know, it's so great to not be worried anymore. Like, I don't want to downplay the fact that it is materially different for me and for a lot of people now that we no longer have Trump as president. Like there is, and again, I'm coming from a position of like, extreme, like, pretty significant privilege that like I don't have to wake up and be like what's this man gonna do today that's gonna make my life worse as a black queer disabled woman like I don't have to think about that but it is still like we're still in the same system we're still in a situation where the government as a whole like the structures that we have in place actively harm people actively deny people their right to comfort their right to life in a lot of cases and we can't act like, oh, if we just change one or two things and everything will be fine. Like for them, it hasn't been fine for a long time and it's really, really not fine now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to go off on a rant. No, you're right. I mean, it is, it is cowardice, right? It is cowardice for folk to, um, to, to try to make these adjustments on the margins. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's disappointing. It's cowardice. Um, it's a lack of imagination, right? Like it's like, you can't even, you can't even be bold enough to imagine a better future for all of us. Like all you can think of is how can things be a little bit better for them and pretty much stay the same for me? Well, yeah. yeah. The ability to radically reimagine what America could be is just so 
lost to a lot of these people. Yeah. And I do think, you know, to your point, like people are afraid, right? Like people don't want to lose what they have. Um, and like, I'm trying not to get into a rant about like democracy and like representation and, <laughs> and all, but I don't know where else to go with this other than like, you know, when we continue to have folk represent us and we can talk, we can actually talk about the election. Like I actually do think I, I do want to talk about the democratic process, the democratic primary. Right. Um, one of the arguments there were, there were two arguments during the primary process. One argument was we need somebody who can beat Trump. And the other argument was like, we need somebody who can save us from ourselves. And Mm-hmm. And we chose, we, you know, I, I use we cause like, whatever. This I'm, country I'm, chose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this country, we chose the person who could beat Trump. And and that's not like, I'm glad that we did that. But like, if you got an opportunity to hit a single or a triple, you go for the triple. And, mm-hmm. and you may get us, you may, you may land on second. Right. But like, you don't, you don't, yeah. Yeah. We, we, things are too dire for us to be playing small ball. Like I'm, I voted for Biden, obviously. I'm glad that he's president instead of Trump, Donald Trump. But watching people like Elizabeth Warren, right, like talk about um, talk about student debt relief, watching, you know, watching whatever Sanders is going to do in, in, in his chairship now, like mm-hmm. it's it is disappointing. It is disappointing to see the level of compromise that is already occurring. Right. Yes. Um, and it is doubly so to it frustrating to see the level of compromise when we have so many good ideas when we saw an election in Georgia where people that that election was not won on moderate ideas right like it was it was won on the ideals of like we can do much better than we are um and and so yeah it's disappointing it is disappointing to see um elected officials who are so ready to compromise in a way that does not negatively impact them, um, but, but negatively impacts so many people. Um, and I mean, specifically like the idea of, you know, only an additional $1,400 one-time stimulus check with thresholds, right. Right. Like limiting who even gets that is, is wild to me. It's like y'all won a way that y'all, y'all won both chambers. Um, you won the Senate when nobody thought that was going to happen. And instead Mm -hmm. of leading on that like we're already compromising with folk who less than a month ago were supporting a white supremacist coup and i have trouble i have difficulty um you know trusting that folk actually have um my best interests at heart when when they're starting to compromise with those people um at that basic level. Like that's not what I didn't vote for anybody to do any of that. <laughs> exactly. Like I think that's really well put that we your first act when you have like you have one power that nobody expected actually. Like nobody was counting on this. You have the presidency, you have both houses of Congress, like you have a mandate from the masses and your first act is well, we don't want to piss off all the people who support the insurrectionists. So let's compromise. It's like what for? What why? To what purpose? Who are you helping when you do that? And why do you keep on helping the same people over and over again, as opposed to the people who desperately need the help? And I think your comment about Georgia made me think another thing that I want in 2021. I want us to make listen to Black women more than a hashtag. Like, I'm tired of this. We're only listening to Black women when they're saying what we want and they don't have any impact on our lives. Like, actually, let's start electing Black women. Let's actually start supporting them when they're nominees. Let's start listening to them in our staff meetings. Let's start letting them actually dictate policy and how we should act. Like, let's start actually listening to Black women and stop making us feel just... Stop making yourselves feel better because you used a hashtag and you're like, oh, I love Stacey Abrams. It's like, okay, great. Like, I'm glad that you love Stacey Abrams. Do you love Shanice though? Like your coworker? Do you love her? Do you listen to her? Like, do you actually elect any black women who run for office in your town, in your district? Or do you just like Stacey Abrams because she's in Georgia? You're not going to Georgia. She's never going to change your life. Like, And it's cool to like her. Right. And it's popular like, it is, like Stacey. 
Right. And it, it wasn't when she lost. I know that much. It wasn't popular to like Stacey Abrams back then, but now it is because she gave you, you know, the Senate because mm-hmm. she did something for you. Now you like her. She's again, not going to change your life. She's not going to tell you to do anything differently. So it, you can feel comfortable liking her. That's not, that's not enough. You need to actually listen to us and you need to actually give us the power that you think is, it's cool to say that we need, but when it comes to you actually giving something up, you're very uncomfortable. Yeah, it does. So it does make me think about, and I did put this in our notes. I wanted to talk about um, Janelle Jones, who is now chief economist at the at the United States Department of Labor. We knew her when. <laughs> we knew her when she was already a big deal. I felt like Janelle was, I, I, she's a brilliant person. I feel like I remember the first time meeting her, I was like, oh, she's a big deal. Um, I want to be her friend. And, but I mm-hmm. like, I think one of the things that she's worked on this past year, um, which has been critical is this idea of black women best as like an economic framework. Um, and so we'll, we'll link to resources to read about black women best in the, in the show notes. Um, but essentially it's the idea that, um, you know, prioritizing and putting black women first, um, and thinking about, um, our economic policy, our policy decisions in general, um, is the only way to ensure that everyone is, is, uh, covered and taken care of. And I, I'm going to just read a little bit about, read a little bit from her own writing about um, the be- Black Women Best framework. If history has taught us anything, it's that Black people, particularly Black women, are among the last to recover from economic recessions and the last to uh, reap economic benefits during periods of recovery or growth. So when policymakers focus on helping the average worker to find a job and the average family to get out of poverty and then declare that the job done when that happens, they are necessarily leaving black women still in crisis. But if they reorient their thinking to put black women first and promote policies that focus on pulling black women out of the recession and into prosperity, then they will necessarily be lifting everyone up in the process. And so, I mean, I think that speaks exactly to your point of like, you know, that that's in the framework of economic policy, but like it's applicable in every aspect of your life. I actually wrote my master's thesis on like how black women or women of color, but especially black women, like all of our economic gains and all of our sort of like social, like all of our capital gains that we had made in the decades before the great recession were completely decimated. And we were having the hardest time bounce back, bouncing back from that. Since we are now in an economic recession that is bigger than the great recession, it is, absolutely critical that we center Black women in particular in any of the tools that we're going to be using to help us actually to deliver recovery. Um, Otherwise, we're going to be, like you said, like Janelle said, we're going to be left behind yet again. And we're going to be like, it is life or death. Like women are going to die. People are going to die if we don't actually center those who have the most need in any of this. Yeah. There's a couple of things I'm struggling with. And not in a bad way, but just like trying to understand what it means for me personally, um, in terms to in terms of like how, how do I prioritize like issues? What's important to me? Where do I put my money? How do I vote? And so you know, part of that it, for me is understanding obstacles that exist in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of it is like, is the work of unlearning mm-hmm. and understanding how my ideas about how the world works, um, what's right and what's wrong is shaped by, um, you know, things like patriarchy, things like white supremacy, things that are values that I don't think I subscribe to. And I feel like I'm actively doing that work. And I think a lot of other people are actively doing that work. And I recognize the difficulty that is that work. But also at the same time, I think that, um, and that's not even, that that's, I'm talking about a, the universe of folk who like actively are trying to do better. Mm-hmm. What I have difficulty with is really understanding understanding how mine and everyone else's um, desire for comfort cost people. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is 
I struggle with like balancing empathy for people who are growing with a very real fear um, for for people who just don't have time for other people to gain empathy to 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 grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot about how we understand gender, right, and like the rights of trans folk, particularly Black trans women. And while like the conversation has changed in in certain ways, and like we've seen small um, policy advances, um, just in terms of like how we understand gender, like people are being lost every single day. People are being taken and they're being lost every single day. And so I think I struggle with, um, you know, how do you how do you sit down and like recognize that people are growing and that they need time and, and just not like flipping over the table and be like, it's too late because mm-hmm. we're losing people. And I don't, I don't know um, where the intervention is in that, like where the line, where the appropriate, you know, what should we no longer um, make allowance for? Mm-hmm. Like at what point is growth too slow and you have to get out the paint, right? Like, I don't know where that is. Yeah. That's very real. There's a lot of stuff that you said that I like that triggered some thoughts and some responses in me, like thinking about my like balancing my wish to do no harm and my wish to like my wish to be an advocate for justice and like a warrior for justice, balancing that with like my wish to be comfortable and my like that even came up for me in terms of the pandemic, when I was thinking like, I didn't want to go to the grocery store. Like I just didn't feel safe going to the grocery store. It took me a while to realize like, you're not okay with going to the grocery store, but you're okay with paying an Instacart shopper to go and Mm. make themselves unsafe so that you can stay in your house and still have groceries. Like that's, that's fucked up. Mm -hmm. Um, Like thinking about how much I can still passively contribute to a really harmful class structure and like, Mm how I value my life versus someone else's life. Like I had to really sit and think about that um, and decide like, okay, so you're not gonna do, like if you don't feel comfortable going to the grocery store, then like don't go to the grocery store. Don't make someone else do it who's not getting paid enough, who's not allowed to unionize, like all of this stuff. But it is really hard. It's also hard because like a lot of our job, again, like a lot of our day job is helping people and particularly white people along their growth journey. And it is, sometimes really hard for me to have empathy for them when I'm thinking about the fact that the fact that you are taking so long to grow and you are so like, even if you really want to, you are still causing harm during your growth process. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to hold empathy for them while I'm also holding empathy for the people that are hurting in the process and the people who are getting like left behind in any sort of progress because we're still saying, oh, people need to come to terms with this. People need to understand. People need to learn all this stuff. Like, I think I actually tweeted something about this the other day when somebody posted that um, picture that now drives me absolutely nuts of like the difference between equality and equity and like that fence and Mm -hmm. it's three, it's three little dudes on a little, like on their stacks of boxes or whatever. I was like, I'm really, am very frustrated with the fact that people are still getting their minds blown about the difference between equity and equality or still just preferring that sort of distinction when we don't even have like, Right now, we need to be talking about liberation. We can't be talking about the difference between equity and equality anymore. That's very much 101 stuff. We need to be talking about how we can liberate people and not how we can deliver equitable outcomes anymore. Like We need to be talking about how to restructure all of this from the ground up and not, again, be like, okay, this little dude needs three boxes. This dude needs two boxes. This dude, we can take a box away. Like We need to be talking about getting rid of the fence altogether. Like It just... Yeah, it's hard to hold both of those things. And I don't even have an answer for how to do that, except like it just, it is hard and it is what we have to do at the same time. Yeah. But like, if we can do a better job of that, then we will substantially like be better people, right? Like as a society, like. Oh yes, yes, that part. (laughs) I thought you meant me, I was like, I'm not holding on a lot of hope. No, and I'm not like, no, because I'm not so concerned about like the individual as I am concerned about like, it just feels like there's a, there, it feels like there is, it feels like the gap between, um, the gap between people being harmed by systems and 
the willingness to completely change those systems. For me personally, mm-hmm. that gap feels wider than it, it just feels, it feels as wide as it always has. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that I feel like we know more. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, opportunities to we've, do more. <laughs> we've come a long way from like 1996 welfare reform. Right. Like, and that's just talking about kind of like the progressive policy space. Like we've had, we've, we've made some substantial changes in how we understand um, just societies to function. And yet I don't feel like policy largely has, has reflected that change in, in, in thinking. And that to me is concerning. That's very scary. I think there's a comfort with the status quo that comes with the progressive policy space and saying we need more people to be sort of like adjusted to fit the status quo as opposed to the status quo is not serving enough people. We need to actually get rid of that as the status quo and rethink it all together. And I think that, I think that you put it really well. Like I think that's exactly right. That our knowledge base and our ability to get information on what people's experiences, like how people are actually living, that has just sort of skyrocketed. We have so much information. We have so much data. It's actually, you have to try not to get information, but what we do with that information has not changed materially in the last like 25 years. And we're still very much went into these ideas that are about, you know, means testing and about like making sure we're doing things towards the average and all this stuff that's just not nearly radical enough. It is very comfortable and it's because it doesn't shake anybody up. It does. It also doesn't lift anybody up. It doesn't change anybody's life for the better. Shifting away from policy, maybe for a little bit, thinking about things that I want from 2021. I really want more Black art to be acknowledged, appreciated, and raised up. And like, I specifically want art that celebrates our humanity and not just our suffering. Because, like, you see what gets all of the Oscar acclaim and well, actually, what doesn't get any Golden Globe acclaim because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is super anti-Black and super realism and super pro like white movie stars, but that's a whole other thing. We see what sort of get what gets awards acclaim, and it's always narratives about our suffering. It's always about slavery or segregation or something awful. And like we are as Black people are resilient people, but we're also people who are full of joy and music and sex and comedy and all of the things that everybody else is full of and we should be having we should be seeing the art that we make about those things lifted up and celebrated just like the art that's about our suffering and what we've survived um sort of celebrated like let me see Daniel Kaluuya who is an incredible actor but I only ever see him in just like some really emotional dramas like let me see him in a rom-com let me like let me see him and Tiana Paris just be fucking whimsical and cute together like let me see like a sexy heist caper with Aldous Hodge and Michaela Cole and Lupita Nyong'o. Like, let me just see people be like fun and sexy and cool and vibrant and let that actually be stuff that other people see too. Like it, this can't continue to just be art that's made just for black people. Like everyone can learn from and feel for the art that we're making that's about our lives. So why aren't they? I want to see more of that. Similarly in the vein of black art, I want to see more I want to see more acknowledgement of black comedy, but specifically like black amateur comedy. And what I really mean by that is like all these people on TikTok, on Instagram and on Twitter, who really like, first of all, I think black comedy has always served as like a sociological tool um, Mm -hmm. for a long time. Like, you mean talking about like classic black comedians has really been rooted in like sociology. But I think more, more so now than ever, like that is that that um, tradition or that practice has 
has been taken up by um by so much many more folk who are just endlessly talented um who are hilarious who are smart who are all these things i want to see them acknowledged more importantly i want to see them paid um I, but I also want to see, like, I want to see them contributing, like, their comedy is text um, that I feel like should actually be driving a lot of conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I think, like, we give those platforms to white artists all the time, um, you know, whether we should or should not, like, you know, you get, and, and so I want to see that same, um, that same thing afforded to, to Black artists, especially amateur artists. It's funny, like you mentioning TikTok, it makes me think like TikTok is, you know, I'm kind of too old for TikTok. I'm on it anyway. Um, I like being one of the old people on TikTok just watching <laughs> all these, all these Generation Z people. But like, it is so fast and so immediate that you can see in like instantaneous real time, white people co-opting black, like black creation and black mm-hmm. art and black comedy. Like it's, you know, we saw that dramatized in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom where like Chadwick Boseman's character, he writes this music that then um, he gets he gets screwed over by a record company. They pay him like $5 for his music and then they give it to a white artist who's gonna make a bunch of money off of it. We see that happen instantaneously on TikTok. Like something that a black person does then gets taken by a white person who's literally just lip syncing along to it, but they get more views, they get more attention, they get, you know, like um, not ads, but they get sponsorships and stuff like that. Like it's just, it's, kind of bizarre to see it happening so quickly and be like this this has been happening the whole time and now it's just happening like with the click of a button and we can see it happening it's it's very bizarre mm-hmm. i think it's also um it, you talking about that made me think about um one night in miami and mm-hmm. um specifically like sam cook's character and mm-hmm. and how he talked about how he understands his role in the music industry to be mm-hmm. um and if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely phenomenal. I listen to Sam Cooke all day, the following day. Mm. But like, I think, I think it, it's really interesting because he's talking about how he's essentially talking about the nature of the music industry, the nature of capitalism in extracting black, uh, black talent, black wealth, not talking about money, but like black, um, just the things that black people are creating, extracting it and, and turning it into profit. And it's interesting to hear him talk about it in a way that's very like, um, institutional. And then to, to your point, to see it happen in a way on a platform that is like designed to be more democratized. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so what it kind of tells me or what I learned from that is like how embedded, um, anti-blackness is not just into like these formal, like music industries and all these institutions, but like how inherent it is just, we, that's how we, that's how we understand how to function and to act and to interact with each other, right? Like it is okay to steal from black creators because like, that's just, that's just how we're raised. Right. Right. Um, we, um, (laughs) (laughs) some of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So I think that's an interesting point you made. I do want to double down on the recommendation for One Night in Miami, though, because it is an incredible movie. It is really wonderful. It's also just like a licorice, all sorts of like, if you're attracted to men, you will find a type that's represented amongst <laughs> those four. And it's delightful. Um, I have my personal favorites. It's no, like, I don't need to go into detail, but it is, it's a great movie for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I think other things I want to see in 2021, um, so, I mean, we talked about policy and like, I think we talked about living wage or if we didn't like, you know, that's a, I feel like the idea of living wage is kind of like an undertone for our podcast, um, among other things, reparations, living wage, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, so I, and this is partly thinking back to our Tallgrass episode that we did. I think we've, we've. We did. I think we've recognized or been reminded of how precarious our food system is um, and how important people are, like not agricultural industry giants, but how important individuals are who we don't pay 
to our food system. I think it's doubly important kind of understanding the history of the U.S. as like an agricultural, like our wealth came from agriculture, from, you know, enslaved labor, um, um, creating agricultural products. Like that's how we became the superpower that we are. And the idea that we were reminded this past year that so much of our wealth continues to come not from agriculture in the same sense, but from the exploitation of all these workers from you know, those who are who are picking radishes and oranges and strawberries to folk who are working minimum wage in grocery stores um, through a pandemic. Um, and so like, you know, a couple of things I wanna see in 2021, one is this, is really an acknowledgement of that. And by acknowledgement, I mean money. Like I wanna see um, industry standards, I wanna see regulations, I wanna see living wages. Um, up and down the the um, the food system. I also want us to. Um, I want to. I want folk to have a larger voice in how food shows up in their lives, and and by that I mean, um, you know, a lot of so over the past four years, one of the things that we fought back um, were these ideas of um, food boxes. So they were going to replace food stamps or SNAP with um, this thing that they called a harvest box, which essentially was a prepackaged box that people get. It has shelf-stable milk, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to say shelf-stable milk. <laughs> yep. I remember and, this. And one of the, beyond like the idea that it was ridiculous, it was bad, blah, 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 blah. One of the, argu- one of the important arguments that actually went under the radar was like, this is culturally inappropriate, right? Like people, food is important to people and people have a right to select food that is culturally appropriate, that is nutritious, that is enjoyable. Like that is, food is actually a right. And so I do wanna see that shift in understanding food as a right, understanding food choice as a right, um, and then making the necessary adjustments to like support the system that that provides us food um, and values that work for what it is. And like, I know that's super specific, I think there are other systems like healthcare, right? Like health needs to be re-understood as a right. But I, I I feel like we haven't begun to really have that conversation around food and it's such an important part of our lives. Um, I think that's a really good point. And I think it is really important for us to, like you said, just sort of rethink, not even convenience, but just sort of like how we access our food and how how we value it, like what we're willing to pay for, what we're willing to, if we want our supermarkets to still be open during the pandemic, are you willing to pay the people who work there? Are you willing to treat them like the essential workers that you've been calling them on Twitter this whole time? Like, are you actually willing to like pay them a living wage? Are you willing to let them get vaccinated before you? Are you willing to double mask up when you go to the grocery store? Like all these things, like you need to be willing to shift how you live in order for, in order to actually acknowledge the value that this system's bringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is all. Yeah. Now okay, I'm this is turning into my laundry list of things I want in 2021. This um, was literally the prompt for the episode that you gave us. So yes. <laughs> but like I'm going, I these are I'm just adding things I didn't even add to the show notes. <laughs> what another another thing that I want to see in 2021. Um, and this actually ties back to work that Janelle Jones has done. Um, and I'll link to some some writing she's done on this because um, I think it was it's really important and I'm not going to do justice to this entire subject, but like care, the idea of care work. Um, I want to see us reevaluate how we approach um, caregivers um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, and and she writes about this, but the idea of how critical caretakers are to our entire economy is severely understated. Um, what does it mean? You know, that's an, that's a, an, uh, an industry that is dominated by women and by women of color and by black women. And so what does it, what does it mean when we don't value um, that work? Um, what does it mean for those people? What does it mean for their families? Um, I want to see as, you know, recon. I don't want to, I want to see as, shift how we how we understand that to be as essential work um and the same thing goes for teachers right like so many parents got firsthand experience of why public education is such a valuable tool 
Um, and if that doesn't translate into higher wages, um, if it doesn't translate into better working environments, um, if we continue to not allow teachers to unionize, if we continue to not allow um, um, the people who care for our children to receive benefits um, like healthcare and, and, and retirement and all these things, like then we have we have wasted a terrible year in 2020. Um, and so I want to see I want to see the care industry um, um, really lifted up on a pedestal as the essential work that it is as well. That's very real. And I, I did who speaks about this as well, like in a lot of her work that like not only are the caregivers who are like professional caregivers undervalued, the idea of caregiving as something that we all have to do is very undervalued because like you said, it's something that predominantly women do and predominantly women of color. And I think in the last year, a lot of us got a like firsthand experience, like a lot faster than some of us were expecting of what it's like to be a 24 seven caregiver that either we had like a family member who wasn't living with before come live with us because we didn't want them to be alone during the pandemic. Or, you know, we've got our children in the house all of the time now and we don't, we don't send them anywhere. Um, and the fact that we do not value that work as a society, we don't pay caregivers enough. And we also don't have policies like paid family leave and um, parental leave and sick leave and all this stuff that would actually make it easy for us to still be working and still be caring. It's preposterous. And it is something that has been true for a long time and it became so much more vivid in the last year that if we don't take these realities seriously, if we keep on treating employees like they're just, you know, functionaries in a system as opposed to living human beings with families and people in their lives who they need to care for, then the whole system is just fucked. And the whole system is not going to help anyone except for the people that has always helped. It's never going to get any better unless we redesign the entire thing. Yeah. You keep on getting me off on rants. I don't know. No, I mean, look, meanwhile, we got people like Jeff Bezos who are just like, I mean. If he if he gave away all of the money that he made over the pandemic, he would still be a multi-billionaire. Like if he he just gave that to people. He would have more than me if he gave that all away. Is another way to put it. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Quite, if quite he a few like dollars. actually, if he individually paid the hazard pay that his employees deserve, he would still be as rich as he was before the pandemic started. Yeah. If he allowed them to unionize and get a living wage, like if he, ooh, that there's no reason for somebody who can't like he can't spend that money in 200 lifetimes. He's one person, and he's not allowing his employees to actually access any sort of benefits to actually yeah. be able to live real lives. Preposterous, inadequate, unacceptable. And, and like it, it is, it is, it has been said, right. This is not new, but it is important. I think that this stays at the top of the, when we're talking about $2 trillion being too much for relief for like a a nation of more than 300 million people. And we're, you know, opposing that to the fact that the Trump tax cuts over 10 years cut more than $2 trillion. Like we're making choices. We're spending the money. We're mm-hmm. making choices. And, and if you want to, if, if, if we're electing people who are going and making bad choices, they're making bad choices. What I refuse to do is let them to pretend like they're not making bad choices or, or refuse to let them pretend like they're not making intentional choices, mm-hmm. right? Like they are, win- they are choosing winners and losers. So don't peddle some free market stuff to me. Like you're making, you're, you're choosing who you want to win and who you want to lose. Um, just be, let's, let's just be honest about it and see how the votes line up. And I'll tell you, see, now I'm going to start talking about the Supreme court. This is what happens when we don't, this is what happens when we don't record in a while. (laughs) And another thing, thing. (laughs) but the last, you know, the last 19 Supreme court justices that have been nominated of the last 19, 15 have been, have been nominated by Republican presidents in that same time period republicans have won the popular vote in a presidential election one time right so what we're talking about is just a massive failure of democracy right like it's a a a tremendous misalignment between what people feel like they need in their lives what they want what they're voting for um and what is being delivered um and yeah. So like democracy, democracy um, 
is an issue. Like, and it, it, again, like it sounds hyperbolic to be like, we're struggling to maintain a democracy, but in, in the most literal sense, we actually are. And yeah. So I want to see more democracy in 2020. I don't know how to frame that one. Like I would like to see democracy. I would like some democracy, please. <laughs> and like, and I don't, and I don't want to like, and I want to be very clear. I'm not saying I want to see democracy again. Like we've never, right. Like that's, that's never been the case. Mm-mm. Right. I want full enfranchisement. I want adequate representation. I want accountability um, in ways that we have not had before ever in the history of this country. We also have never had a truly free market. And that's something that, you know, people who were making a lot of money off the lack of a free market were perfectly okay with until they started getting sniped by people on Reddit who were like, well, if there's no regulations then I can do whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) And suddenly all the rich, all the hedge fund managers are like, whoa, 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 we need to regulate this. People can't just be coming out of nowhere and just crash it all of our, like stealing trillions of our dollars. It's like, oh, is that, is that a problem? Is it not fair? Is it too, is it too free? Is that what's going one, on? One guy was literally, he literally went on TV and said they are picking on the rich. And I was like, how did you fix your mouth to say that? Richly. He did it. <laughs> he did it after getting up out of his bed of money. And was like, how dare you? Yeah. What else you want? Um, I feel like it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Reparations. I want reparations in 2021. I want them in 2022. I want them for the rest of time. Yep. Yep, keep them coming. Mm-hmm. I want to live where the money resides. That's where I want to be. So one, um, you know, I mentioned Janelle Jones's piece on Black Women Best. Um, there's a couple of different pieces where where she kind of lifts it up. One is in Data for Progress. Um, another is in a piece with the Roosevelt Institute that she did. And so I would like to post, we'll post both of those. Um, also, this isn't something, this is something that I've read actually multiple times over this past year. And I think I lifted it up. It was written almost a year ago. It was written last March um, by Andrea Flynn, but it's called The All-Consuming Emotional Labor Caused by Coronavirus and Shouldered by Women. Um, And when you started talking about just something you said reminded me of it, and it's a piece that I've revisited. um, Because personally, like in this past year, I've tried to reflect on, um, you know, how I'm showing up in my own family in regards to caregiving, Um, not just for like my child, but also for my parents, my grandparents and um, and so I, for me, that was a really powerful piece and I recommend it to um, men in general and especially men who have women in their lives um, and you just want to be a better partner, um, read that piece. Um, I also, I just finished, um, this is completely different. I just finished uh, Children of Blood and Bone, um, which was it was very enjoyable. Um, it took me a while because it's uh, it's so long and I'm just like out of practice of reading for pleasure. Um, but I'm trying to make a commitment to doing that in, in 2021. This month, I'm only reading um, um, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and so I'll report back. I'm, I'm trying to get through several books. I'll report back um, at a later time. Yeah, let me know. What are you reading, Marion? So right now I am reading Transcendent Kingdom, which is a novel by Ghanaian American author Yag Yasi, who also wrote Homecoming, which is one of my favorite novels just like of the decade. Um, I think I've brought that book up a lot on this podcast because <laughs> I think about it a lot. It's an incredible book. And so I'm reading Transcendent Kingdom. I'm reading it a bit slowly because it is just really sad. Like it's just very emotional. And so I'm just sort of taking my time, pacing myself with it. Um, and next on my list, I have Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marsha Chatelaine. And it's about um, pretty much what it sounds like. It's about how McDonald's as a franchise and how like it actually contributed to the Black middle class in the 70s and 80s. And it's a, it's a fact that's sort of parodied in the movie Coming to America, which is, yeah, like McDowell's is very much a real thing. Like being a franchise owner was a way... For, 
towards the black middle class. And that stopped being the case, like once you hit the nineties. And so I'm really excited to read this book. And I'm also just going to give a shout out to Hotels by Jasmine Sullivan, which has just been like my weekend sort of soundtrack for the last, I don't even remember when it came out at this point. Like it feels like it came out six years ago, but it also just came out in January. So, you know, it's, um, but yeah, it's an incredible album and I recommend it to everyone. I also usually don't like, um, like skits on albums. Like I don't like the talking, like that's my least favorite thing about like the miseducation of Lauren Hill or like almost any Kendrick Lamar album, but this one I love. So I think that is a, a big argument in its favor. Nice. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We have merch. Get your How Do You Want Your Reparations t-shirt and or mug at www.attheintersection.bigcartel.com. Our music was produced by DJ Seven Keys. You can find more of him and his music at www.sevenkeysbeats.com and on Instagram at at Mr. Underscore Seven Keys. That's the numeral seven on both. You can follow us on social media. We're at at the podcast. That's A-T-T. H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Our website is at dash the dash intersection.com. You can send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to at the intersection of at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really anywhere else podcasts are found. Absolutely. All right, y'all. Take it easy. Thanks. <laughs>